afternoon of seeing Ben Schultz ordained, and we're excited about it. That's a big deal for those of you that might not be aware. I mean, it's a big deal to be ordained. It's the recognition of the call of God and the gifting of God upon a life. It's like as big as like a wedding kind of thing. Maybe not, but it's pretty big. So we encourage all of you to be here for that. It should be a great afternoon at 3.30 today. Have you noticed that people like to talk? Have you thought about how much people like to talk? What do they usually like to talk about? Themselves. Have you ever had the kind of conversation where somebody asks you, how are you doing, Gene? And she barely starts to get the words out of her mouth before they interrupt and say, oh yeah, I had the same thing. Except for mine was worse than yours. Have you ever had that happen? Because we're not really good at listening, we're really good at talking. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, People like their lives and their stories to be put on display so that everybody can sympathize with them or rejoice with them, depending upon what the case is. Think about even our media. If you were to look at the guide on your TV, most of you probably have a TV and most of you have some kind of guide on it. If you were to look at that guide, you would find that morning, noon, and night, there are talk shows. I mean, in the morning, it's, um, I don't know, what's in the morning? Fox and Friends. Okay, we know you're bent. Um, Good Morning America. Or, uh, what, what's the other one? Uh, where is it here? The Today Show. Thank you. That's what I was thinking of. In the afternoon. What's on in the afternoon? Dr. Phil. Dr. Oz. Ellen. And at night. Who's on at late night? Who's late night? Jimmy Fallon. You know, I mean, there's talk shows all throughout. Because everybody thinks, and I want you to hear this, everybody thinks that what they think and what they have to say is the most important thing. And you ought to hear them. We don't care so much about what you think. I care about what I think. So, I did some investigating uh, on the fount of all knowledge, uh, Google, and I discovered that the average American has 30 conversations a day. Okay? That's an American. I don't know about other nations. The average American will spend one-fifth of their lives talking. Now think about it. One-fifth of your life is talking. In one year, one year, your conversations would fill approximately 66 books of 800 pages per book. That's your conversation. If you're a man, you speak about 7,000 words a day. If you're a woman... <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies. I'm, not, I'm just quoting. You speak about 20,000 words a day. By the way, did you hear the one about the guy who was asked, do you resent the fact that your wife always has the last word? And he replied and said, no, I just am wondering when she'll finally get to it. In the same way that that joke, which was so bad, could get somebody in trouble, our words often get us in trouble. Our mouths betray us and what's deep inside of us. 
We've been looking at the book of James, which is towards the end of your Bible. But James, uh, the uh, half-brother of Christ, is a very uh, practical person. And he's written a book to help us understand what true maturity is. What spiritual maturity is. And did you know that in every single chapter in the book of James, he references our tongue or our mouth? Every single chapter. And sometimes more than once. It's that important in terms of understanding where we are at in our own maturing process. Now, when you don't feel well and you go to the doctor, often one of the first things he will say to you is, stick out your tongue and say, ah, why? Because your mouth and even your tongue can help to diagnose what's going on inside of you. And I would suggest to you that your tongue can also diagnose what's going on inside of you spiritually and emotionally. Uh, When I was a kid, I grew up in a a fairly large family. Uh, Anybody here have more than 13 kids in their family? Okay, so I I beat you all. Uh, We had 13 kids in my family. And uh, when my mom would talk to us, you know, being a young kid growing up, you get to a certain age, you start mouthing off a little bit, sassing. And I can remember my mom saying to me again and again, you watch your mouth, mister. So the name of my sermon today is, you watch your mouth, mister. Watch your mouth. Be careful what comes out of it. Uh, Last week, I shared with you three things out of James chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. James chapter 3, I turned and and I shared with you three things that James said to us. And I want to kind of recap them for you. And if you're a person who takes notes, I would encourage you to take notes on these because they're not actually what I shared last week at all. This is like a whole new sermon. Uh, I just thought this worked out a whole lot better. So I want to give you three, three quick points before I get into today's message about recapping really what I talked about last week. The number one thing we learned, number one, is my tongue directs where I go. James uses the illustration of a rudder on a ship or a bit in a horse's mouth. And he says, though that bit is small in proportion to the horse, or the rudder is even smaller in proportion to the ship, it can direct the course of where you go. And I want to suggest to you that we shape our words and then our words shape us. You want to know where you're going to go in life? Pay attention to the things that are coming out of your mouth. Are you the kind of person who always uses the words like, I just did, always, or never? This will never work out for me. Or this is always the way it's going to be. You shape your words, and then ultimately your words affect how you feel, which then affects your perspective of your future. I got to tell you, I confess, and this is a sad confession, but it's true. Last night, Kayvon and I were on our way briefly out for dinner. Uh, We can't be gone long from her mother, but we went out briefly. And we were pulling off of a side road onto the road going into Mount Morris. And suddenly, our car caught fire. It's never happened to me before. It was an interesting experience, actually. It was kind of cool. I mean, you open up your engine well, and there's these flames. And you get down, and there's flames underneath. It was kind of cool. We were never in any danger. Never. It was just kind of interesting. The reason why I'm telling you the story is the first thought in my mind was, what did I do wrong that God has to get me? Our thoughts and our words 
can reveal some deep stuff inside of our hearts. And that's really what James is going at. Your words direct where you go. The second thing that James tells us is your tongue has the ability to destroy what you have. He talks about a fire in verse 5. And I remember when we were back in our Elam days, there was a popular song out that went something like this. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Right? Remember that? Okay. James is saying the same thing. It only takes a spark of your tongue to actually set on fire. In 1983 in Australia, one fire, one fire overnight destroyed over 600 square miles of land, villages, and livestock all from a single match. Think about it. That would be like us setting on fire all of Wyoming County and part of our surrounding county and all burned to the ground because of one match. Smokey the Bear tells us that a careless camper can destroy a forest in the same way that a careless word can destroy a person's life. Think about words that are said, even within your own relationships. How many wounds in your relationship with your spouse came because of words that you uttered in anger, in frustration, maybe in pain, in fear, but you uttered them and they eroded trust and a sense of safety. Words have the ability to destroy. There are people that we call verbal arsonists. Some of you are old enough to remember back to the days when Joseph McCarthy was known for using his words to burn people, to hurt them. Verse 6 says, it sets on fire the course of nature. He's saying here that your words can have a domino effect. They can have a chain reaction. Um, Karen and I over the years have often met with couples. Marital issues going on. And we all, I mean, if we're honest, there's not a person in this room that hasn't had marital challenges. That at times you need somebody to come alongside of you, to walk with you, to help you. And I can remember at times people coming and talking to us. And the husband will say, well, I said this, and then she said this, and then I said this, and there's a pause. And they'll look up and they say, then all hell broke loose. Your words have the ability to break loose hell in your relationships. Number three, my tongue displays who I am. Your tongue, whether you know it or not, is a huge tattletale. It's easy to come into this sanctuary, lift your hands and sing praises to God as you did today, but it's as easy for many of us to get in our car and head down the road and then you and your spouse get in an argument about just where you're going to eat lunch. With one breath, you're saying, praise God. With your next breath, you're saying, shut up. We reveal what's going on inside of us. Our tongue is kind of like Dr. Heckle, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, is it? Help me. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's like, it's kind of split personality. The tongue directs where I go. It destroys what I have. And it displays who I am. Being a Christian isn't just saying the sinner's prayer and thinking that's it. You can't be a Christian and just live any old way you want. The truth is, if you've invited Christ into your heart, your life changes. Eugene Peterson, who is probably most well-known for the Message Bible, said this, 
Being a Christian means walking the way of Jesus the way Jesus walked. Let me say that again. Being a Christian means walking the way of Jesus the way Jesus walked. Or years before Eugene Peterson was ever on the scene, St. Francis of Assisi had a saying that he is known for, although he didn't say it quite like this, this is how it's kind of morphed into being, and it's this, preach the gospel everywhere at all times, and when necessary, use words. The implication is, your life ought to be a witness of Christ. What you say and how you say it matters. That's the kind of maturity that James is advocating. So that's all a recap of last week, and now I want to pick up from there into this week. So, would you all turn to the book of... Wrong! (laughs) I knew you would think that. No, we're going to actually go to the book of Psalms. Psalm 39, I want to look at another man who is very well known in the Bible. His name was David. He was perhaps most known as the worshiper of the Bible. He he was a man who understood something of the heart and nature of God. But if you read carefully, you will find that David has the same problems that many of you and I have. He has a problem with his tongue. And so, here in chapter 39, David takes some time to describe the strategies that he uses to try to control his tongue. And there's not a one of us here that are exempt from this. If you are honest, you know there have been times in your life when you have uttered something and the second it came out of your mouth, you wish you could suck it back in. You've just said something that desperately hurt somebody. And maybe it's born out of your own anguish. Maybe there's something else going on that caused these words to come out, but they have to be in before they can come out. And so, David struggled just like us with his mouth. And he has some strategies he wants to give us. So, Chapter 39 of Psalms, if you would turn there, in verse 1, follow along. David says this, I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. The first way we all try to deal with our tongue is we try to guard carefully what we say, and we even determine to say nothing at all. I've told you about a card that I used to carry in my pocket. I used to have it all the time. And on that card, I had simply these words, shut up. And when I would go to meetings, I would take that card out, and I would hold it in my hands like this so no one else could see it. And every time I was tempted to say something, I'd look down and remind myself, keep your mouth shut. That's kind of what David is saying. He says, I was silent. I restrained my mouth with a muzzle. But David soon learned that that technique, that strategy, though it might sound good, doesn't really work because ultimately you almost can't help yourself. You're going to blurt out something. Look at verse 3. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, while I'm thinking about these things, the fire burned. And then finally, I spoke with my tongue. That's a description of a man who's got a war going on inside of himself. Outwardly, he looked calm, cool, and collected. But inside, he was a raging inferno. He went into a situation where he purposed, like many of us, I'm just going to be quiet. I'll just listen this time. But they say something that just so, it drives you buggy. How could you think that? 
you've got to blurt it out. I can't tell you. It, maybe you're not like me. Maybe this is just my problem. But I can't tell you how many times I sit down with somebody and I think, just be quiet, don't say anything. I know they don't agree with my, they're not Christians. They don't agree with how I think about things. So don't say anything, it's not going to help. Just love them. But invariably, they start talking about what they believe. And I'm thinking, how can you think that? And I blurt out something. And then later on, I think, why did you keep your mouth shut? Um, when I was at Elam, he, you might even remember this. I don't know. For those of you that don't know, by the way, we have an esteemed guest in our midst, Pastor Pete Miller, who is the pastor of Friends of the Cross down in Corning, New York. He was also the pastor in Leroy for years and years and years. And he's been a good friend over all of these years. And he's up visiting us today, primarily for Ben's ordination, not for my preaching. But um, back when we were at Elam, uh, there wasn't a whole lot to do. So you had to find some enjoyment in life. And so you either played volleyball or you played ping pong or you played a little bit of basketball. I'd never played basketball before in my life. But uh, I, I went out and started playing and I worked with Mark's Mark uh, Johansson a little bit, tried to learn the game a little bit. But there was one guy, we started playing intramural ball, but there was one guy by the name of Paul. He was a friend. He was a year behind me, but he was a good friend. He had problems with his mouth. It was, I mean, I can't tell you how many basketball games he got kicked out of. He was constantly getting technicals, and I think we had the rule that with two technicals, you're kicked out. So he would get kicked out of game after game, and he, he was bothered. And he shared the story that one day he was reading this scripture about David talking about a muzzle, and he thought, that's a good idea. So he went and he bought some leather. This is a true story. He bought some leather and he fashioned a muzzle for his mouth so that he could see and hear, but he couldn't speak. It had like a pacifier built into it kind of thing, and it pulled it tight. First thing I ever knew about it was he walked out on the court wearing this muzzle. And we're all like laughing, you know, what are you doing? And he took it off to say, hey, I'm tired of getting kicked out of games. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conquer this thing called my tongue. So he put the muzzle on, and we're playing the game. Our, our team was playing against him. I can remember on our team, uh, I had Doug Abbey and Dave Allport, just a bunch of guys. We're playing a game, and I could watch throughout the game Paul's face getting redder and redder. You knew he had something to say, but that muzzle wasn't letting him say it. Until finally, it was towards the end of the game. It was like anybody's game at the end. Something was called. I can't even remember what the call was, but it was called against Paul. And you could see like steam coming out of his ears. He was so mad. And finally, in desperate anger, he ripped that muzzle off and he let the ref know what he thought about that call, what he thought about the ref, and what he thought about the ref's parents. We can try to muzzle it. We can try to control it. But you know and I know by, from experience, it doesn't last. That doesn't really change anything. Because we saw last week that the real problem is not our tongue. Jesus said it's what's in the heart that comes out of our mouth. The real problem is we need a heart change. David started out in his first strategy, for those of you that like to kind of keep track of this stuff. David's first approach was, I can handle this myself. And I think we do that. I'll beat this thing. I'll, I'll read some health, self-help books and I'll, I'll conquer this thing just like my friend Paul did. And then you find out that that thing beat you. The second strategy is founded in verses 4-6. to six. 
Verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely, every man walks about like a shadow. Surely, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. Now, David uses a common Hebrew phrase. He says it, Lord, Make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Another way in our day and age of saying that is, God, would you show me what's going on inside of me? Would you show me my heart? Would you show me the deep places inside of me to show me what you see? And I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer, but it's a scary prayer to pray. You're asking God to show you sometimes the gunk that's inside your own heart. It's like we have these pictures of people who are smokers and we look at their lungs that have turned black and calcified in his heart. And we know that about smokers, but what we don't realize is that sometimes our heart can look just the same. Where all the junk of life is piled up. And then we say, God, show me what's inside of me. And if he even gives us a glimpse of it, it's like, oh my word, what are we going to do? Because it's so frightening in nature. David prays that way. And God actually shows him some things. The first thing that David sees about his life from God is that his life is brief. He says, you have made my days as handbreadths. Handbreadths are like a standard of measurement that was so small it wasn't even worthy of being called an inch or a foot or a yard or a mile. It was small. And he's saying your life is brief. And you say, what does that have to do with your tongue? What God is saying to David is you're not going to live long enough to conquer this. You don't have enough time to beat this thing called your tongue. It's too pervasive. The second thing that David sees, he says, my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best is but a vapor. He's saying not only is your life brief, but in that brief allotted time, you're weak. You're not strong enough in yourself to conquer this. And that's frightening for us because we all like to think we're really capable. And then age starts catching up with us. And suddenly we find out that all that invulnerability that we thought we had as youth is out the window. And little things, how, how many of you recognize that as you've aged, things are not quite the same they used to be? Have you found that out? You know, like, how many of you have gone out to do a day's work that you used to do without thinking about it? And now at your age, doing that same work, it takes you a week to recover. That's what God is saying to David. You're weak. You can't beat this thing. I mean, it would sound nice to think we can do anything we want. I mean, when we were young, parents used to tell kids, you can do anything you put your mind to. Can I tell you that's one of the biggest lies that parents have ever promoted in their kids' lives? They can't. What matters is what is God calling you to? What does God want of you? Not what do you just imagine in your mind. I mean, we've got 60-year-old men who still want to go back and join up with the Who Band. It's too late. The who band. That was an interesting wording. Where did that come from? Popped into my mind. One of the great truths of the Bible is found in 2 Corinthians 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen. It says this. And he said to me, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now Paul picks it up. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, 
I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That, that's like uh, oxymoron. When I am weak, then I am strong. No, Paul is saying, I've recognized that when I am weak, that's the place where God's strength comes rushing in. And that gives me strength in my soul for what I have to do. That's what Paul found out. Jesus put it this way in John 5.19, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. And then, in chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, Without Me, you can do nothing. God said to David, not only is your life brief, but you're weak. You can't do this yourself. And finally, the third thing that we see in verse 6, David uses the phrase, walking around like a shadow. That speaks of appearance without substance. David is confronting the truth that all too often we walk around wanting to present an image. We want people to think a certain way about us. We want them to see us a certain way. But it's a mask. It's an image that we have put on. The problem is that most of us don't recognize that that's born out of what I'm going to call, for lack of a better term, pride. I want people to think well of me. I want people to like me. I want, I want. But the truth is, pride itself is born out of fear and insecurity. Not thinking you're enough in yourself. That what God has done in you isn't good enough. It's not enough. So you have to prove something, and you put on this mask to have an image that people look at. And God is saying to David, the problem is not only is your life brief, not only are you weak, but you're not even presenting the real you to the world. You're pretending. You're putting on an act instead of being real. Few Christians, I would suggest, ever come to this truth. Most of us live our lives continuing to wear our masks afraid that people might actually see the real me and reject me. That it's not good enough in what God has for us. In our school systems, in our society, we're taught that our number one need is to look out for ourselves. It's survival of the fittest, and I better be the fittest because I better come out on top. The problem is that all of the techniques that we have learned to keep ourselves number one ultimately fail. All of those self-help techniques are going to fail because at, at heart, the root of them is that we ought to be an independent being. I don't need anybody. I can remember my father saying, again, before he was a Christian, but I remember my father saying, I don't need nobody. Bad English, but you know what he meant. Everything that I need, I'll make for myself. I don't need the government. I don't need my neighbors. I'll take care of myself. That sounds good to an American because we're taught we're the best and we can do anything we put our mind to. But the truth is, God never intended that you be independent. So that when parents say, my number one goal is to raise an independent, autonomous person, that's not biblical. God never intended you be independent. He intended that you live your life dependent upon Him, upon His grace, upon His strength. And then He also intended that we would be interdependent, helping one another, bearing one another's burdens is how Paul puts it. He intended that we be dependent and interdependent, but not codependent. 
where their happiness is the basis for your happiness. If they don't do this, if they don't want this of me, then I have no more point in life. And we do this kind of thing all the time. So his second example was, first he says, I can handle it myself. Then he says, I can't handle it. That was his second strategy. I can't handle it. I tried it. It doesn't work. Which brings us to David's third strategy in verses 7 and 8. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Just pause there. In your Bible, put a selah. Which means stop and think about it. My hope is in you. And again, remember what David's talking about. That thing burned within me and then I spoke. He's talking about his mouth, his tongue. He says, my hope for ever conquering this is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. He started off saying, I can handle this myself. Then he said, I can't handle this alone. He's like Moses. When Moses was called, the first thought he had was, while he's still in the palace, who else but me? God put me here for this reason. After 40 years on the backside of a desert, Moses says, is there anybody else? Kind of where David's at. I can't do this myself. The third approach is, I don't want to handle this alone. I don't want to. There needs to come a point in every believer's heart and life where they not only know they can't do it without God's help, they don't want to do it without God's help. Years ago, I can't remember, uh, maybe somebody here will, it was either my father-in-law or Bob Mumford said, the scariest moment in my life was when I realized I could, even if God didn't. When I could, even if God didn't. I don't want to live my life without God, without an awareness of Him. When I was young uh, in the Lord and I had just started pastoring, you know, I, I very much was concerned about what people thought about me. Did they think I had what it took? Did they think I would be a success? And I, and I would go to meetings, and uh, I can remember ministers' meetings where they would start talking, and they would say, go around the room and introduce yourself, and they would start off, and they would give such accounts that I could never match up. They would talk about how they were having a church of, you know, three, four, five hundred people, and invariably, it would come to me, and they would say, well, Chris, how many people regularly attend your church? And I would say something like, well, somewhere, uh, depends on the Sunday. Yeah, but how many? I said, well, it's somewhere between two and three hundred. I actually had thirty, but that is between two and three hundred, if you listen to the words. Because I wanted people to think well of me. I wanted to be important. I wanted to have an image where they thought I had it together. What I found was that um, I drove old junker cars that I literally had to keep a cardboard in the back to put on the ground so I could lay on the ground to jump the starter with a screwdriver. I was ashamed of my cars. I was ashamed of my clothes. I was ashamed of my sermons. I was ashamed of my church size. Everything was about me. And I had to come to a point in my life where I realized none of that stuff really matters. What matters is who you are in God. Is that enough for you? Not that you failed. I mean, we sang it this morning. The truth is every one of you in this room have failed. You've blown it at times. Sometimes as the world measures it, or maybe even as the church measures it, sometimes it might be a big failure. But the truth is a failure is a failure. We've all blown it. Big or small, it doesn't matter. 
I've lied in my life. I've stolen in my life. I've done crazy things. Every one of you here have your own testimony. But the grace of God is what captured our hearts and began to change us from the inside out. So if we're looking at the issue of our tongue, we have to come to a point where we're saying, God, I can't do this myself. And I don't want to. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I won't live long enough. And that's where David came to. This final approach, verses 9 and 10. And again, until you find your security and your identity in God, you will never feel good enough, smart enough, wise enough. You will never feel enough until you find yourself settled in God. Nine, Verse 9, I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. He finally came to this point where he said, God, you help me to handle this thing called my tongue. That's his fourth approach. God, you help me. I almost worded this, God, you handle it for me. But my concern was that somebody here is going to take that as, okay, God, I got this problem. Now I'm going to lay in my hammock until you magically fix it. That's not what David meant, nor what I mean. It means actively engaging the help of the Holy Ghost in your life. He's the one who changes you. He's the one who comes alongside of you as your helper to cause there to be change. And that's what David, David started out saying, I can do it. Then he found he failed and said, I can't do it. Then he said, okay, God, I need you. Help me in this. And what I want to end really quickly with is just uh, three points that I think David points out for us, and James does as well. Three points that are like helpful solutions. Now, these are not like you do these three and everything's fixed it. Because, I mean, I got to tell you, I, I come to a point in my life where I hate sermons that have these, you do these three points and everything will come out perfect. Because I've tried all three points and they didn't come out perfect. I blew it. But these are three helps to us that every one of us need. So number one, the first thing that I want to give you is this. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. Our problem is not our tongue. It's a heart. It's a heart issue. Jesus said, out of the heart flows the issues of life. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31 says this. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Get a new heart. Painting the outside of the pump doesn't help if there's poison in the water. You have to change what's deep down. I can change the outside. I can put on an image. But what I need is an inside change. I need a heart after God and from God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. All things become new. It's a process. We live our lives this way. Every day, seeking after God. God, do something inside of me. I don't care how old you get or how long you've worked with God. There ought never be a point when you're not crying out saying, God, I need more of you. I need your life inside of me. David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. This was a man who sat before the Ark of the Covenant because he knew God's heart. But he still says, create in me a clean heart. But do something inside of me. The second thing is this. Ask God for help every single day. You need supernatural power to control your tongue. You can't do it on your own. Your life is living proof 
a failure. All of us have. We need God's help. David said this, Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the doors of my heart. The wonder of the Gospel is that real change can't happen without God's Spirit dwelling within us. We, we need to, as it were, get saved. We need to get born again, again. Where we say, God, come in and change me. Change my heart and my life so that what comes out of my mouth is the Gospel. It's redemption. It's hope for people and for myself. Getting into God's Word is part of that. Because what is the computer statement that's out there? Garbage in, garbage out. Let God's Word soak your soul. I can't tell you how many times when I'm out working out, walking out, that I am reciting Scripture to myself. And sometimes those Scriptures deal with a specific situation I'm dealing with. But sometimes they're just general Scriptures I've memorized. I want God's Word to wash my soul. To cleanse me inside. And so that what comes out is born out of His Word. Paul says this way, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, think on these things. Why? Because he goes on to say, then the peace of God will reign and rule in your heart. Think on the Word of God. Let that wash your soul. The third point is very simply think, or maybe it would be better to say, pray before you speak. Pray before you speak. Every single day, Engage not just your mind that I want to guard my lips and guard your spirit. Let your spirit rise up and say, this is where we cry out to God for help. When you put your feet on the floor beside your bed, you say, God, this is a new day. There's new mercy. There's new grace for me. There's new loving kindness. I'm asking for your help that your life would flow through me. That I would be a channel of your grace to people around me. And at heart, what I do personally is I say, God, Help me to become more aware of you today. Because the truth is, God's with us. That's His promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The problem isn't God's presence. The problem is our awareness of His presence. And my prayer is, God, make me more aware of you. Because if I become more aware of God, something shifts inside of me. I begin to see redemptive possibilities around me. Let me ask you, what does your tongue say about you? If you were to go to Dr. Jesus and he said, stick out your tongue and say, ah, what does your tongue say about you? And again, this isn't an issue of judgment. This isn't an issue of feeling upset. This is an issue of saying, I want an honest evaluation from Jesus. What needs to happen inside of me? And sometimes we know, we know the scripture says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth what is good for necessary edification that it might impart grace to the hearers. We know the Scripture. But what does that look like for the individuals with whom we come in contact? Do our words give hope to them? Give a sense of vision for the future? Or are we quicker to find fault? To express judgment? Or judgmentalism? What's your tongue reveal about you? Proverbs 23.7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, what's in your heart is going to affect your life. And it's going to come out of your mouth. What direction is your tongue leading you today? 
Some people say destructive things, not just about others, but about themselves. They do something and their first thought is, why am I so dumb? And you begin to speak stuff over yourself that's not healthy and not godly. David concludes Psalm 39 with a prayer for help. But I want to conclude with another saint's prayer for help. And it's also a promise. It's in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Let me just read it to you. And let this soak into your heart. It says, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Dave, or Isaiah, rather, is espousing the idea that we as a people need to learn to wait on the Lord. But that word wait, an interesting word. In Hebrew, it literally means to twist or to stretch. And what Isaiah is saying is, those of you who sit here today, if you will take your weakness and your struggles and twist it around the strength of the Lord, you're going to find something begin to shift. You will mount up like wings of eagles. You'll run and not be weary. You'll walk and you'll not faint. And so God's giving us a promise, but also an offer. He's saying, if you will allow your weakness, your struggle, your challenges to be merged with my strength, I promise you, something will change. That's God's promise to you today. I'm going to ask if you would just bow your heads. God's offering us an opportunity for an exchange. 